0: Where does it go, where does it go, all of that cast-off junk, where does it go?
1: Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of people and places and things. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to be talking to you about where the Hobby Lobby looted antiquities went.
0: Ugh. I used to work at Hobby Lobby.
1: (laughs) Really? I didn't know that.
0: (laughs) When that story broke, I was not surprised at all.
1: (laughs) No, there's really not a lot that's especially surprising about this, except, well, I'll get into it. So what's Hobby Lobby? Hobby Lobby is a, I put schlocky, craft and home decor store. I think, like, live, laugh, love, and bless this house stuff, plus some pom-poms and googly eyes and Jordan almonds for weddings and stuff like that. And they gained a lot of national attention in the United States when they challenged requirements to cover employee prescriptions for birth control and health care plans in 2014. They're run by evangelical Christians, and they're based in Oklahoma, though the Green family, the evangelical Christian family that owns Hobby Lobby, also runs a D.C.-based Bible museum. Now, I'm, I'm mentioning that so that it's sort of ringing a bell for people who haven't actually been to a Hobby Lobby. I've been to one several times, and I'm, Sarah's been to one more times than she'd probably care to think about. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so, they should have gained more national attention starting in 2009, when they started getting into legal trouble because of the millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions of dollars of looted and smuggled Iraqi and other places antiquities that they brought bought. So they did purchase at least most of these from somebody. But uh, at the end of this whole sort of what has shaken out uh, in terms of the legal trouble that's been involved, uh, Hobby Lobby said it did not fully appreciate the complexities of the import process when it started importing antiquities. All right, why antiquities? Well, I wanted to talk about DC-based I mentioned the DC-based Bible Museum because this is an evangelical Christian family. They are very interested in uh, Mesopotamian, Middle Eastern, biblical, quasi-biblical, biblical, Bible-adjacent artifacts, and so they started buying them. Uh, they are—I didn't check if they're millionaires or billionaires. They're probably just millionaires, as if that's something you can just be. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so they started buying and importing these antiquities, largely for what they call biblical study purposes, and in order to eventually open a museum to, and it is open, to show these antiquities to people who are interested in uh, biblical history, the Bible as it intersects with human history, things like that. How do we know that these antiquities that they bought, because they've bought over 40,000 of them. It's just, it's piles. And I I want to talk about what they are. They are cuneiform tablets. They are what are called bullae. There are papyrus fragments. There are some statues. There's rumors that they bought a mummy at one point, although that was probably a fake mummy. I mean, it probably was something mummified, but it wasn't an ancient Egyptian king or whatever. So, these are piles and piles and piles and heaps and 40,000 different pieces of clay tablets, basically what are like large, fragile rocks. So, I'm just... I, it, it, it's a lot of stuff. It's not 40,000 pieces of paper. It's not 40,000 books. It's not 40,000 items in a museum. It's piles of stuff they didn't they didn't keep very good track of when they bought things and what they bought and whether the manifests of the lots that they bought from different places were in line with what they purchased and so there's it's just a mess it's a mess of stuff that Hobby Lobby purchased and brought to the United States so how do we know these were not on the up and up after I I went through that list of likes, they don't know what they bought the, um, this is a quote, the ancient artifacts, and I saw this fact all over the place. This was quoted in every article I read about this. The ancient artifacts were smuggled into the U.S. through the United Arab Emirates and Israel to Hobby Lobby's Oklahoma offices, with falsified shipping labels claiming the packages contained ceramic tiles and originated in Turkey and Israel. Now, they started importing these things as late as... Uh, 2007 potentially and at the time and even prior to that there were broad warnings issued by experts both directly to Hobby Lobby staff because they hired people to be sort of guides in this process that, that I think, I don't know if they didn't listen to them or they didn't ask the right questions or what but yeah <laughs> I have didn't my go-
0: opinion of, of what happened but yeah
1: Uh, So there were broad warnings issued by experts about two issues with antiquities from the Middle East that became available particularly post-2001 invasion of Afghanistan by the United States and post-2003 invasion of Iraq by the United States. One, there would be a lot of fakes. And two, there would be a lot of stolen pieces. And... There were also reminders to people in, involved in antiquities markets, and, and particularly, specifically to Hobby Lobby, that there were major restrictions from the early 90s, so from the Gulf War, on importation of Iraqi cultural items. So this was something that has been specifically looked at by the Department of Homeland Security and Customs and Border Patrol, and probably other legal entities. Where did they come from, so that I can tell you where they went? So the probable sources of Hobby Lobby looted and smuggled antiquities. As I said, there was really poor documentation for the purchases, and there was really poor documentation after the purchases. The Green family didn't hire thorough or effective curators for the collection, and there are many objects where they don't know when or where they were purchased, let alone where they came from prior to purchase. So there are just piles of clay tablets or papyrus or stuff that they don't know where it came from.
0: Well, how did they, what? How, how are they going to know in their museum how to display this if they don't know what it
1: is? Well, that's a good question, Sarah. <laughs> so they don't, they don't quite know where a lot of this stuff came from. Uh, and then this is another quote it's, Hobby Lobby has been going through its entire 40,000 piece collection with almost half of it now determined to either be potentially looted or fake. So, they didn't <laughs> heed the warnings, or they didn't think the warnings were, were important, and now, there we are. Uh, they bought a lot of these at private auction, and even uh, Christie's Auction House sold them certain uh, items of potentially problematic provenance. Uh, I called this... Wow. I, I call this a Christory. It's a, it's a Christie's mystery, a Christie's with a little shout out to the podcast antiques freaks who are amazing and have discussed Christie's history significantly and (laughs) occasional fraudulent antiques that Christie's has sold, but claims they're not fraudulent. And I'll get into uh, how Christie's intersects this in a moment, but some of the stuff is just straight up stolen and it's, it was, it was easy for people who knew what they were doing to trace the, a lot of these stolen items to where they were stolen from. And I'm not saying that Hobby Lobby is sending out people from Oklahoma directly to Iraq, Afghanistan, Israel, etc., and snatching things. But I don't know that they're looking too hard at the... Or they are looking very hard at the uh, chain of command and the uh, supply chain management of these antiquities, but are not necessarily heeding the law anywhere. Because you got to think about the law where the item originates, the law of, of the different nations that it passes through, and then the law where it ends up. One of the museums, this is another quote, Prized Holdings is an ancient Jewish prayer book used by what was then a thriving Jewish community in Afghanistan. Hobby Lobby believed the prayer book had been in the UK since the 1950s, which would have made it legal to purchase, but a museum investigation has confirmed that it was in Afghanistan in 1998. There's also the Papyri project, which is a British antiquities repatriation search kind of project. And it alleged that an Oxford academic Dirk Obnik engaged in the theft and sale of at least 11 ancient Bible fragments to the green family. They're the owners of Hobby Lobby and the museum said it will return the fragments to the Egypt Exploration Society and Oxford university. So I mentioned that they're being returned. That's where a lot of these artifacts are ending up is being returned, which is surprising to me, but I think it it may be the case that with 40,000 different items I don't know that they necessarily care about having to send some of them back, especially if they are fakes or it's not worth the fight if they have been stolen.
0: It makes them look better, too, admittedly. It does.
1: It makes it a much quieter story. And that's how I got interested in the story, because I saw on BBC News on their website in 2017, I think, Maybe, I think, I swear it was earlier. Maybe it was, maybe it was before 2010. Anyway, I saw Hobby Lobby settles a lawsuit about smuggled antiquities. They paid a fine. I'm like, they get smuggled antiquities? The craft store smuggled antiquities? Did they sell them in the store? Like, I, I want to know, <laughs> were they selling them at Hobby Lobby? Like, what happened? So it's been of interest to me for quite a while. Just what happened? Uh, so, one of the items that they have is, and this is one this is how Christie's is coming into it. They have a tablet that they bought at auction from Christie's for like 1.8 million or something like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That was that is a fragment of the epic Gilgamesh. And if you're not familiar with Gilgamesh and its place in literary history, it's considered by some people to be like the first, piece of literature. Wow. Yeah, it's one of the earliest pieces of literature, one of the first sort of fully written out stories. Some people almost call it the first book, but this is on a tablet. Like a like a clay tablet, not a iPad. So uh, wouldn't that be something if it was on an iPad and they bought it? That'd be a fake for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they did anything that ridiculous, but, you know. So they they ostensibly own a tablet uh, that has a fragment of the, and a, and I'm not going to call it, I shouldn't call it a printing, a copy of the first book. And so Christie's is saying that there's no problem with the provenance. Hobby Lobby is saying Christie's didn't tell us this is their fault. And Egypt is saying, Hey, Give us back our antiquity. It was stolen. (laughs) So they bought it in 2009. No, 2007. And they, uh, Christie sold it to them with a letter of provenance saying that it was imported to the UK in 1981. So this is similar to the Jewish uh, book of prayer in that they've got these letters that say this is from nineteen fifty, this is from nineteen eighty one. These these left before people cared as much about repatriating stolen artifacts. So we don't have to worry about repatriating these stolen artifacts. Because people didn't care at the time, and so the laws accommodate that. I got opinions about artifacts if you didn't if you couldn't tell. So that's one way Christies is involved with this. It's a Christie. I should ask we should ask Hobby Lobby if we could do a joint episode on the Gilgamesh tablets sold at Christie's. I'm still talking about where these things came from. That came from Christie's, ostensibly from Egypt, but through where? How did it get to Christie's? How did it get to London? Then there's the ancient Sumerian city called Irisagrig. or Irisagrig, Erysagrig. I don't know. I don't speak ancient Sumerian. But this is something that you could argue is a lost city because the place has never been properly excavated and you don't know exactly where it is. And that's a quote from an archaeologist who was given by Customs and Border Patrol and the Department uh, of, of Homeland Security around 72 hours in a warehouse, an unclimate controlled warehouse in New York State, because this is where all these lawsuits are taking place, this New York State uh, they sent this poor guy in there and gave him 72 hours to identify as much as he could. <laughs> and so he's in a room full of tablets and cuneiform tablets and belay and he's got to decode them and try to date them and try to say where they're from and he determines that they're from a place where they don't know where it is because everything has been looted and there's been no sort of chain of command or, or documentation of where this came from. So he was able to figure out that, the, according to one of the tablets, it said on the tablet it took four days to tow boats upstream from Umma, or Uma, which is a known ancient Sumerian city. Like they, People roughly know where that is. So what's four days of towing boats upstream from Umma? It might be Iris the Grig. Maybe. So, and then unfortunately, Alma itself is one of the most heavily looted of all known ancient sites in Iraq. Iraq? Sorry, I'm American and we've had it mispronounced at us for decades. I apologize. So, you've got items from ancient cities. You've got items from auction houses that have been smuggled from who knows where and who knows when. You've got items where they claim it's from here... From the 50s, and it's really from there in the late 90s. And some of the items likely have come directly from the National Museum of Iraq. And I don't know how many people remember what happened to the National Museum of Iraq, but (laughs) in 2003, it basically got blown up. Yep. And, or burnt down? Both, probably. It, It got looted, and the museum curators were trying very hard to sort of collect as much as they could and keep it hidden and safe so that it wouldn't get stolen. But so much of the collection, the overall collection in the National Museum of Iraq got stolen. And then I wonder about how much paperwork that actually tracked where these items came from got destroyed in the process of destroying the museum. So that's where some of them probably came from. And now they're in maybe Oklahoma. So, (laughs) or DC or, well, we'll get to where they might also be. There was also an Israeli investigation. There were several private, this is another quote, several private residences and storefronts in Jerusalem, belonging to five antiquities dealers and of Palestinian origin. And the authorities, I don't know if they're actually Palestinian origin, we could talk about how Israel and Palestine feel about each other. This is, like I said, a quote. And confiscated several historical artifacts, including a papyrus fragment from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is a big deal, and a Pompeian fresco. (laughs) What? From the island that got covered in ash from Mount Vesuvius. And more than $200,000 US in cash. They found evidence of money laundering and tax evasion as well as receipts bearing Christian Green's name and the Green family owns hobby lobby and smuggled antiquities. So, that's how the and the Israeli authorities were in touch with the Department of Homeland Security in the United States the year prior. This happened in 2017 this this raid. Uh, the year prior, 2016, they were in touch with uh, the Department of Homeland Security got in touch with them and was like, hey, uh, we got these people here that keep smuggling stuff and they haven't stopped. and have <laughs> gotten in a lot of trouble for it. Uh, you might want to just take a little looky-loo and see, see, see where you can find their stuff. I'm probably being very more, much more casual if it were in that communication. But anyway. So where are they getting the money? to do this because I think this is actually part of the story of where this stuff goes. So as best as can be guessed, the green family private funds are involved very much. So, so hop, you know, the, the, that hobby lobby money that, that Jordan almond dollar, that high dollar Jordan almond money, not paying their employees very much. That probably, too. I <laughs> <laughs> but also, the Green family donates antiquities to its own museum. And they have always followed a set ratio of three to one, the appraised value to the purchase price. So they donate items stating that the appraised value is triple the purchase price that they paid for it. And the goal of that is a tax write-off. And this is a quote, the government is effectively paying the Greens to amass a collection of dubious antiquities.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So after a case with the Eastern District of New York was settled in 2017, Hobby Lobby, well, the Green family, not directly Hobby Lobby, agreed to return some antiquities they had purchased. In March 2018, there was a ceremony in D.C. where 3,800, 3,800 of these antiquities are handed back to Iraqi authorities to be transported to back to Iraq within the next month because that has to now technically be exported out of the United States and into Iraq. So there's so much bureaucracy that these people are stuck with because this stuff got stolen and smuggled that they have to figure out just enough to like have a, a suitable paper trail to prove that they didn't then steal it and smuggle it themselves. <laughs> And this is reminiscent of the nuclear. Uh, I, I did a nuclear satellite. Yeah, in the nuclear satellite episode, we were sent a nuclear. It was either a nuclear satellite that we were sent or a nuclear rover or a nuclear ship, something. We were sent something nuclear powered from Russia. And there was a big hang up on sending it back to Russia because we were technically exporting a, a, a nuclear bomb. Or something that could be used as a nuclear bomb back to Russia, even though they (laughs) built it and gave it to us. And so it took, like, over a month to get the paperwork straight. So I feel really bad for the Iraqi authorities that are just trying to get their stuff back that somebody stole when the United States blew up their country. And then they got to go through double bureaucracy on the way back that nobody went through on the way forward. Anyway. In 2020, a green family member stated that an additional 11,500 antiquities would be repatriated to Iraq and Egypt, but there wasn't any more detail to that. So, that would be worth keeping a keeping an eye on. So, oh, here's my Gilgamesh notes. Uh Oh, Hobby Lobby is ref- or the the green family is refusing to return the Gilgamesh tablet. And suing Christie's, Christie's fighting the lawsuits. And then the Eastern District of New York is again involved in trying to get that tablet back to where it belongs. (laughs) So that's where the antiquities are. Some of them are in Washington, D.C. Some of them are jumbled up in a warehouse in Oklahoma. Some of them have gone back to roughly where they should be. And some of them, who knows? Where are they? Some of them are fake. Some of them aren't antiquities. Did they? Did those get thrown away? Because if you think about it, faking an antiquity—that's kind of—that's kind of, that's kind of a, a, a something you. I feel like you'd want to follow up on, right?
0: Right, and it's not just like something I painted in my garage and tried to pass off as an antiquity. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. There's stuff where people are like, "Look at this vintage cabinet," and it's it's something from like.
0: 1998
1: and that's not vintage just to be clear
0: not yet stuff from the 90s is not
1: vintage not yet uh, and it's not an antique and I'm not just saying that because it makes me feel old to think that way it's just it's not part of the definitions of the word vintage or antique retro kitschy throwback those all work not vintage not antique okay that's my little rant So, Hobby Lobby. No surprise. (laughs) No, not really. Knowing what I know about that company, none of this is particularly surprising, but it is disappointing.
0: No, they, uh, so when I started working there, um, this is uh, when I had first moved out, and I was working full-time in the frame shop, and they kept the first two weeks of pay from me and said that that's just how it is.
1: Uh... And
0: when I finally quit years later, I actually didn't know that that was illegal.
1: (laughs) That's super illegal.
0: Yeah. I was told that they keep the, first two weeks of pay and then give it to you at the end I'm not sure I ever saw it but that was like a a
1: security deposit on your job or something that was
0: a rough two weeks
1: without a paycheck yeah so wage theft too that's nice
0: yeah and I don't know I don't know if it had something to do with the management at the time he was terrible but I, I don't have good feelings about Hobby Lobby, let me just put it that way, but, you know, it might have just been the management at the store, but I just remember, I just remember a lot of corporate hula-baloo, hula yeah.
1: just, yeah, I have a low opinion. Me too, I mean, who's, ugh, anyway. What are you talking about, Sarah?
0: <laughs> I'm going to talk about the coin shortage, as in the coin shortage of 2020.
1: I'm excited. I know. I, I know there is a coin shortage. I've seen the little signs of like, please give us coins at yeah. the Krispy Kreme, but I don't know why there aren't any coins.
0: So they're all over the place. I went to the grocery store and I saw a sign that said, "Due to the coin shortage, we can only do credit cards or give exact change." And I was like, "What coin? What?" we have a coin shortage? Like, when did that happen? Like, you know, I'm living in a COVID bubble, as is a lot of people. So the, the thought that there is actually a shortage of minted currency, just kind of blew my mind. So I, I looked into it. And I, I was interested to find the actual reason for this. So As the businesses, so what is it? It, As the businesses that have remained open during uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, or are starting to reopen again as economies in other states reopen, they have to order change if you've ever like been a cashier or anything and you have to get change for your register or whatever. So those companies that exchange money have to actually order change from the bank. So we need this many quarters, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't been able. So those, those companies haven't been able to get enough change from the banks because the banks don't have enough. There's an actual shortage of change. So, I investigated this and I found a few reasons for the shortage of coins. So, the US Mint, um, if you remember from my dead currency episode, uh, is the place since 1792, and the Coinage Act um, has been, has, uh, makes and circulates the coinage in our country. So, it mints all the coins. Since the pandemic started, it was it was working at limited capacity because of worker health and safety It never closed, but it was working at limited capacity uh, so that uh, they could figure out worker safety uh, because of the virus and figure out how they can get people to work. But since June, they're starting to return to normal operations with safety precautions in place. And they know that there's a coin shortage, but they wanted to make sure everybody knew that they were still coining money. The problem is not that they are not making currency. The problem is that there's not enough currency going around. So they're minting enough currency, but... It's not moving around in the economy, and the reasons for that vary. So places like coffee shops, laundromats, bakeries, uh, bars with pinball machines, slot machines, coin kiosks at the grocery store, because people are staying home and buying lots more stuff online, and people are, you know, they don't really want to handle cash anyway because people have been touching it and whatever, kind of gross because of covid nobody wants to be exposed to the virus on coins potentially who knows because of that there aren't there isn't this flow of coins into the economy so there's enough coins they're minting enough coins it's just they're not flowing from laundromats, bakeries, any place you would spend like a dollar or two Spending and use machines. your your dollar, or your $5 bill and get change back. That's not happening. A lot of places are a touchless uh, checkout. Yeah. So you can just use a credit card or you can use your phone for like Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever. And a lot of that is there's not a, a flow of coinage. Also, people are starting to hoard coins, of course, because when I'm saying some people, I'm not saying everyone, some people hearing there's a shortage, perhaps like toilet paper, (laughs) they start hoarding the coins because there's a shortage of coins. (laughs) Because this makes sense. I found an article uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, from a laundromat that's saying that people were coming into the laundromat. They're not even using the laundromat. They're coming in, getting as much change as they can, and walking out with it. Oh. So there's there's that piece of it. And I think that's the smallest piece that people are hoarding coins. A lot of it is more that... It's just not flowing into the economy. If you think there's a lot of laundromats out there where they rely on coins, their machines are coin only. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have those coins. So they're out there. And, you know, I don't know if you have a change jar, Emily.
1: We have a little, like, box of change.
0: Yeah. I have a change jar. I haven't used it at all. So everybody has their change jar, and they're not using their change. And I would normally go to um, what is it that like the coin kiosk at the food line, but I have no desire to go to the food line right now and dump my change and stand there for 20 minutes. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same. And it's just oh, definitely. I feel that way. A lot of other people feel the same way. So it's not just not a flowing thing. So the outcomes of this. So I, I wrote a couple articles that suggested the outcomes of this. Um, some people posited it's going to hasten the end of the penny. So if, if you didn't know, the penny actually costs more to produce than its face value. So it, it costs about two cents to make and circulate a penny, which... Uh, loses the U.S. government about 90 million dollars a year. So there's been debates for years, as long as I've been alive probably, talking about getting rid of the penny, like a lot of other countries have, like Canada, New Zealand, uh, South Australia. Korea, Mexico, and Australia. Yeah. They they just got rid of their pennies. There's there's no point to it. So uh, like South Korea, I think their largest coin it their smallest coinage is a 10 cent. 10 I'm not sure centavos but I hate nickels. so
1: I would love to get rid of pennies and nickels I think pennies are at least pretty nickels are too big they're heavy they're only five cents I can't stand them
0: yeah and it, it it doesn't make any sense to have them honestly and when people have looked at it it hasn't really affected much in those countries like nobody is really losing money and actually the consumer ends up ahead by like a quarter of a, a quarter of a cent because business businesses are rounding up to you know 10 cents or whatever
1: well there you go reopen <laughs> the economy get rid of the penny and the nickel because, just to make me happy the nickels to make me happy the pennies to reopen the economy <laughs>
0: And I found other places that are positing that this is going to hasten us even more quickly into a truly cashless society where – we just stopped using currency, period. And businesses will only accept cards or Google Pay or whatever in the future. And a lot of people are saying that this you know, pandemic, it's changed everything, of course, as we all know. But it's, it's actually going to change our, our currency and what we're doing. And we're just seeing the beginnings of it right now, which I found really interesting. Uh, When Sean and I went to Germany, we had to go and wash some clothes while we were there years and years ago. So we went to a laundromat that I think was right across the street from our hotel and they had no cash. Like this is years ago and they had no cash. You basically like got a little card and you put your card in. Uh, you you put the dollar amount of what you wanted on the card, and then the machine only took that card. Like
1: like public transportation.
0: Exactly, exactly. So it would save you know laundromats money. They would have wouldn't have to uh, do the coin like constantly ordering change, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Banks right now have asked people and the mint has asked banks. So the mint asked banks and banks are asking people please only order what you need. And the mint is like, "Look, only order what you need." So <laughs> <laughs> So the banks are asking people, "Please take your change jar. Bring it to us. Please use the coinstar machines." Please, you know, if you're worried about getting COVID from the Coinstar machine, bring it to the bank. You know, just please cash in your coins. Don't hoard them. And there was actually a guy recently that he had a huge collection of coins. I guess he just collected coins. A lot of people do. And he just, he actually turned them in uh, to the bank so that, you know, at least he knew his coins were being circulated. So, yeah, that's, they're just not circulating because COVID has, messed everything up (laughs) oh yeah
1: and i think about all the vending machines that aren't being used because people aren't going to school people aren't going to their workplaces where vending machines are used there's those little grocery store vending machines where you put a little quarter in and you get a little toy or a gumball
0: exactly
1: I don't know what the vending machine economy is in terms of dollar amounts, but in terms of coin amounts, it's probably fairly substantial.
0: Yeah, it's it's just crazy how there's such a butterfly effect on everything. And I was looking, I was like, how can there be a coin shortage? Of course there's a coin shortage because nobody is circulating their money.
1: (laughs) Right, and there's like the dollar menu at fast food joints, and if you're not going out for... Lunch because you're working from home or you don't have a job because so many people aren't employed or you don't want to go out and you're bringing food from home because you don't want to catch COVID, then the smaller value items that people might like, oh, I'm going to get an ice cream cone on my way home or, oh, I'll just get a little burger to tide me over, just like the dollar one. People would spend change on that. And then there's also... um I know Easy Pass is becoming mandatory for a lot of toll roads. Yes, and that would be a huge change in terms of change. <laughs> in terms yeah, there of are
0: places in North Carolina. That I don't think we have any toll, toll people here. I don't like, think we do I anymore. really don't think so. It's all Easy Pass, and uh, it's like up in the Chicago area. They just take a picture of your license plate.
1: Yeah, and I think they do that here too. If you don't have an Easy Pass, yeah, definitely, trapped on the highway.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so if you have a change jar and you feel like it, uh, I'm not suggesting you go out if you don't feel safe, but you know, you you might want to circulate that currency back into the uh, the economy if you feel like it. (laughs) Buy an
1: ice cream cone.
0: Get an ice cream cone. Get a coffee. But there was also a good point made that as we go towards cashless societies, and I wanted to bring this up, that there are plenty of people, and I'm thinking particularly of poor people, like very poor people, that are barely making it anyway. They don't have bank accounts. Yep. They, you know, They don't interact with banks. My brother saw this all the time when he worked at Walgreens. They would take their paycheck and they would put so much money on uh, the cards that they could buy at the Walgreens. So they would they would have this certain card with this amount of money, you know, the, the gift cards that you can buy at the checkout, the Visa right. gift cards, etc. So that is a lot of what they're doing. So a truly cashless society... Uh, would would hurt these people if they're not able to take that money and have a place like a Walgreens or like a Western Union near them where they could actually make it so that they could put their money in cards or put their money in you know Samsung Pay or Google Pay or Apple Pay. You know I think you need a credit card to do that. Pretty much you yes, have a wallet. Yes, typically, yeah. So yeah, that that would actually harm the the poor, so we would have to figure out how to make that accessible for people, or find some way so that people could actually have more access to cashless currency.
1: Yeah, there's also the the, the drive of interchange of currency by gray markets, so paying babysitters, Exactly. S- somebody selling snacks as a side gig to whoever, wherever. Uh, school fundraisers where you're selling, whatever, candy bars or something. It's If you go to cashless, that's gone. That sort of fundraising capacity, that sort of interchange of, hey, I've got some spare change and you've got this good. I, I'll take your good. You now have cash. It It, it alters that so fundamentally that I don't know... I don't, I don't know what would happen to a lot of people in terms of getting paid. And, and you can say, like, oh, just skip Venmo or whatever. But then you've got money further consolidated. Right. In the control of tech companies. And you can say, oh, but it's my money. It's like, oh, it's the tech company's app. And if they shut down or eliminate your access or forget your password and you didn't forget it or whatever... It's gone. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there are some real problems with it, and it's worth mentioning that Mm -hmm. a cashless society is not, you know, the magic and bells and whistles that it sounds like, and though it is very convenient, if you don't have access to the ability to pay into that system, basically. Uh, And also, poor people can be the victims of, transaction fees oh
1: absolutely and you, and
0: you can see a lot of that in like check cashing check loans
1: overdraft fees
0: overdraft fees yeah it's
1: data overages
0: Mm-hmm. exactly so yeah the the coin shortage has just brought up a bunch of stuff thanks covid <laughs> yeah
1: yeah <laughs> It's kind of like we've been set back 100 years and forward 100 years all at one time.
0: Isn't it strange? Which I is think very so disorienting. <laughs> I spend actually a, a fair amount of free time like looking at recipes f- from the depression. Just because mm-hmm. some of them are so fascinating to me. It's like what they had available and they made it work. But at the same time, you know, we I'm thinking about cashless society and what that does to the urban poor. The, the rural poor particularly are the ones that would really suffer from this.
1: Yes, definitely. Fast. And then all the all sort of economic stuff that either depends on cash because it, it depends on poor people to keep running, like, say, uh, public transit, because public transit fundamentally depends on people who do not have the means to go outside of public transit. I and mean, it's less so in a lot of other countries or in certain places, but, you know, the Manhattan Transit Authority does not have cars light on fire and rain pour in underground tunnels into trains, or, like, subway trains, specifically because wealthy people utilize it. It mm-hmm. is, in fact, the opposite. They can get away with it because... There's not enough, you know, collective power in economically disenfranchised people to actually get a lot of change made. Anyway, we could talk about income inequality for a long time. But what is, you know, what's going to happen? And will the person or the people who make that decision think about all that and actually care about it in an egalitarian and an equalized way?
0: Yeah, probably not probably not unless we change something unless this brings good change to our country and we actually start considering these things instead of just you know hurtling towards the future while not caring who gets hurt but that's another story but I think it's it's definitely good that it's bringing this stuff up I think it's good that that we're thinking about it that it's You know, it's kind of making it very stark. COVID is making it very stark about who is getting COVID, who is more at risk, who is more at risk of dying.
1: Who's forced to go back to work and back to school. Yes. Who isn't forced to do those things. Who can do those things remotely. All that stuff, yeah. It is, I guess, a good thing that we, we aren't being faced with this sort of, with, a, with a, a nice fresh coat of paint on it. It's like, there's a coin shortage because there aren't enough coins. Not There's a coin shortage, so why don't we just go to consolidating under, uh, you know, Acme Corporation? They're, it's for the greater good. <laughs> it's like, no, this is a disaster, and we're out of coins. Help. And that makes it look really like as a big an emergency as it would be if Corp were taking it over. But then it doesn't have, the like I said, the shiny coat of paint on it.
0: Right. The shiny, shiny chrome, shiny paint, uh, all sparkly and nothing is wrong. Keep working. Keep your head down. Keep working. Everything's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, go shopping on Black Friday and don't worry about it
0: go wrestle your neighbors for the cheap TV (laughs) at four o'clock in the morning.
1: (laughs) I don't want to do anything at four in the clock, four o'clock in the morning. I am amazed that anybody does. Yeah. So that's where it goes. You can find us at where does it podcast at gmail.com. If you want to tell us where you're right. If you want to tell us we're wrong, that's fine too. I don't know if we'll respond or not. (laughs) You can find us at whereitispodcast.com, and we're on most podcast distributing platforms and most social media platforms, but we are not on Facebook. Bye!